Well, I want to welcome everyone to BibleQuest.tv. Actually, I want to welcome all of our fellow Bible students that are in the audience. We're glad you're joining us today on this Tuesday afternoon as we discuss Bible topics and things related to the scriptures. We do want your questions and your comments coming into us during the program. And if you're coming in through the app, uh, you have a few more options that you, available. You can click on the icon that says Q&A, a little button that says Q&A and pops up your window. Type away. If you want to come on live with an audio question using your audio on your computer, or if you're coming in by phone, uh, click the, the raise your hand icon, I think it is. And that'll bring you, that'll tell us you want to come in and speak to us. And uh, let me introduce the, uh, bring in the other panelists. We have Stephen Rouse. Hi, Stephen. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Drew. How are you doing? Doing very good. You're down in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, right? That's correct. Okay. Scott Smeltzer, you're over there in Gettysburg, historic Gettysburg. Glad you're with us. How are you doing, Scott? And I saw Scott, but now I don't see Scott. Well, we'll wait for Scott to come back. There you are, Scott. How are you doing? You got to say doing something. Fine. How are you, Drew? All right, good, good. Jeff Smeltzer in Exton, Pennsylvania. Hi, Jeff. Hey, and anybody who's watching, and you, if you live in the uh, Exton area, if you are out west of Philadelphia or even in Philadelphia, I'd be glad to meet you. You could come visit with us at the church that meets in Exton on Whitford Road, 217 North Whitford Road. I like that. Yes, each guy, each of us can do your plug on where you're meeting. So if anyone is in the area, come on in. Uh, Jonathan is joining us. Jonathan is with us as well, our web engineer. How you doing, Jonathan? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Excellent. And I'm glad your audio is working this week. Got it working now, yeah. And I'm Drew, your host up in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. We're about half an hour, 40 minutes northeast of Scranton, northeast portion of this beautiful state, Pennsylvania. Um, stop in anytime. We got, you can go to our website and get our information there. The website is christiansinhonesdale.com. Scott, where, what town are you in again? Why don't you tell us where you're, you're meeting? Uh, I'm working with the church uh, in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, Gettysburg Church of Christ, uh, just a little bit north of town. Cool. And Stephen Harrisburg, you're you're new out new out there in Harrisburg, right? Stephen? Yeah, that's right. The, the work here has been going on for a little over a year, but we've only been here a few months. Uh, you can look us up at capitalcitychristians.com, and we meet at the East Shore YMCA just across the Harvey Taylor Bridge. Great. So today's topic is uh, interesting. Every, every week, actually, it's interesting. You guys are always bringing in good, answering good questions. Good answers to good questions, but today it's a little bit more personal for me, and we're going to be talking about something that I'll never forget. The topic, obviously, is music. Music and worshiping God. Now, my background, as most of you know, those who listen to the show and also got the panelists, my, I was raised Catholic, and the gentleman who uh, introduced the scriptures to me never really brought me to a place that they worship these non-denominational Christians until after I converted to Christ. I was baptized into Christ. And the first time, the Sunday I went there, the first Sunday I went there, I, I did everything I could not to walk out. It was so hard for me to stay there because everybody stood up 
and sang. No instruments, no piano, no organ. There's no choir. They're singing, and a lot of people were singing, not so good, and a lot of people, or some people were singing pretty good, and what is going on here? And this was the most uncomfortable thing for me. Not, not all Catholics, I guess, would have had that experience, but for me it was, what are they doing? Who do they think they are? They're not professional singers. You see, you had to be a professional singer, right, to sing in the choir. And I said, why are they singing? What, what does that have to do with worshiping God? And I, you guys are going to bring that those answers in. But I wanted to start the conversation of how uncomfortable it was to me. And I'll never forget that. In fact, when you mentioned it earlier to us, I think you said that it took everything to not get up and walk out. Yeah, yeah I thought I said that in this part of oh, it. Did you? Oh, I'm sorry. I missed that. It took everything for me not to walk out. Because I said to myself, I can't walk out. I know who Jesus is. I've been saved. I can't walk out. I got to stick through on this. And it took me a while. But what are these people doing? Yeah. So why don't you tell us what are they? What are we doing? <laughs> yeah, Sundays? let's take a look. Uh, let's share a screen here. Um, yeah. While he's looking that up, anybody in in the audience, if you've got had similar experiences or those of you who are un trying to figure out why do Christians sing so much in worship, uh, put your comments in. If this is what you're used to. So like if, if you had walked in and that had been there, you would have felt right at home. Right, Drew? If, if what? Do you see my screen here? Oh, yeah. that's okay, that, <laughs> If you had walked in on Sunday and that had been there, you would have felt comfortable. If that had been there, that, that would have been impressive. And you would understand why those people were up there singing, right? Absolutely. And they're supported by the orchestra and everything. And a lot of people, this is what they're used to. And maybe everybody's singing, but they're, it's, you've got a band up there performing that they're being kind of entertained by. And so this, wait, wait, is, wait, wait, wait. this is a concert. This isn't a worship service. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a uh, church service. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, a lot of what they're often called now is praise teams. And so you have a band that's, you know, somewhat professional, perhaps. Do I see fog and smoke coming off the stage? Uh, yes. Some, um, oh, what's his face down in Texas? He's, <laughs> he spent over a million dollars or so on the lighting system, or about a million. can't believe he Sometimes said have the fog and everything. So if that's what you're used to, and then you walk into a group of people who are just doing this, speaking one to another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, seeking singing and making melody with your heart to the lord then that seems very strange it was and often when people start discussing it particularly the instrument part uh they will say but and i'd like somebody to comment more on the idea of professionalism in a minute i'm going to comment just on this part for a little bit people will often say but weren't instruments called for in the old testament and the answer to that would be what yes of course yeah where are some of the places in the Old Testament that that's clear? Psalm 150. Uh, yeah. you know, praise him with the harp and the lyre and percussion. I mean, I like the percussion part of that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, Stephen's a drummer. Um, and so uh, that's back there. And so I want us to take a minute and compare the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In Second Chronicles 29, it has this. He stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with what? Symbols and harps and lyres. Uh, 
too many churches have liars in them today, but of a different type. This <laughs> was, was a stringed instrument. Uh, and it what was this just something he decided to do, or was there something more behind it? There's going to be a passage that talks about this command is from God. Yeah, it's according to the command of David and of Gad the king's seer, seer and of Nathan the prophet, for the command was from the Lord through his prophets. So the Levites stood there with the musical instruments of David, and the priests had the trumpets, and they began the song, and there were the trumpets accompanied by the instruments, and there were also singers that sang and trumpeters uh, that sounded their trumpets. And of course, Psalm 150, as you mentioned. But let's look a little deeper at Second Chronicles 29. Because first off, we might just say, well, this is the Bible, and it has lots of instruments, so we should have lots of instruments. But are there, are there some other elements of worship in Second Chronicles 29 that everybody doesn't assume we should import? Well, well before, but let me get a little bit more basic than that. So what you're saying is, from of old, God wanted music included with worship towards him? During the Old Covenant, and... Uh, especially, uh, now it wasn't in the Ten Commandments, but especially in Psalms and in this order here in Second Chronicles 29 at the temple. And for a lot of people, that, you know, that seems self-evident. They feel like, well, the question's answered. Then we should do that. But what I'd like to point out is there were some other things going on in that same worship service. What were some of the other things going on in that same worship service in Second Chronicles 29? There's probably going to be some animal sacrifices going on. Yeah. Uh, it starts off, it refers to uh, that they had not been uh, burning incense or doing burnt offerings uh, as they should have been. And so now he's going to get that going again. They're going to get back to doing proper offerings and burning incense. And they've got the house of the Lord, the table of showbread, the altar, seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs. You got a Levitical priesthood. They're killing goats. They're putting the blood on the altar. They're slaughtering lambs. Uh, they got the Levites with harps and lyres. You got the musical instruments. And so, yeah, you got trumpets, you got harps, you got singers, you got 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 lambs, 600 bulls, 3,000 sheep. So if I were to walk in to uh, a church on Sunday and bring with me a bunch of livestock and start slaughtering it right and left and saying, let's build an altar and do some incense, well, what would people say? Well, we want to make sure you're a Levite first before you do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. And the answer to that would be no. So let's look around and find a Levite. And where would we find one? I don't think you can. Good question. Yeah. And uh, and where is the temple? It's over in Jerusalem. I, no, it no, was. It <laughs> used to be until what year? 70, 70 AD. Yeah. And after uh, the Jewish leaders arranged to have Jesus crucified, uh, as the Lord said, the temple was destroyed. So the point is, I want to suggest note here, is the difference between the nature of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, where was God's kingdom? All over the world? No, it was pretty much located in that geographical area you have on the map there. Yeah, and when they were to, how were they to, to, supposed to deal with the Amalekites? Uh, have some Bible studies with them? Mm, uh, just, just kill them. All right. And uh, how, how did they dress? Like everybody else? 
Mm. Well, the priests had a very specific garments, and you had the the, t- uh, the tabernacle, and then the temple, and the incense, and the candlestick, and the sacrifices, and the altar. Those are all things that are part of the old covenant, right? Any comments on that so far? And and one of the things that you see that's characteristic of the things of, uh, under the old covenant and the worship under the old covenant. It, there was a lot of emphasis on things made with hands, things that were manufactured, things that were physical, touchable, outward things. Yes. Yes, a lot of that. And included, there was trumpets, you know, and the incense and the harps and all of that. Now, so if we look at Israel in the Old Covenant, the church in the New Covenant, their temple was physical. Mm-hmm. What's the New Testament say about our temple? Well, we are living stones. The temple of, of God today is the spiritual house made up of those who are saved. God dwells in his people. Yeah. So it's, uh, and there's our passage, First Peter 2, living stones were built up into a spiritual temple. Uh, they had a specific territory. Uh, today, where is God's kingdom to be found? It's in our heart. Rule. It's in our heart. In the heart. Uh, sanctify the Lord in your heart. And Jesus said in Luke 17, don't say lo here or lo there about the kingdom. He says it's, it's within you. Um, their warfare was physical, but 2 Corinthians 10.4 says what? Ours is Our not of flesh and blood. Yeah, it's yeah. not of flesh and blood. Their sacrifices were animal, but in Romans 12, what's our sacrifice? Our very lives? Yeah, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. Where were they to be circumcised? The flesh. And we are to be circumcised? In the heart. And the heart there doesn't mean the blood-pumping organ, but it means the inner inner being. Right. Right. And by the way, we might point out on this, Moses had also said be circumcised in the heart. It's not that the old covenant wasn't to include spiritual things, but those spiritual things were encapsulated within this very physical outward form. And, and when we get to the New Testament, where where do these things on the left fit in the New Covenant? Well, they're, they're no longer needed. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, these physical things were kind of object lessons teaching a spiritual idea. But, you know, Paul contrasts the the shadow of the Old Testament with the body, which is Christ. So just like there's a uh, a human body who casts a shadow. You can look at the shadow, which which tells you something about the body, or you can look at the real things. So these Old Testament things that were physical things were really just foreshadowing something that's coming that's the real thing. And so ironically, the real thing is not the touchable thing. The real thing is the spiritual thing. But the Old Testament outward thing taught something about it. I find so that I thought, oh, go ahead. The, 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 what was the scripture referring to the shadow? The shadow, I think. Colossians two sixteen. Right. So the shadow, you can't really touch a shadow, but you do touch the physical things that make the shadow. Here we are, the real things, but you can't touch the real things. It's spiritual. I mean, who would make up such a story? Yeah. Well, let's read that passage real quick. It's just so powerful. So, uh, Colossians two sixteen and seventeen. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
And that's so just such a fundamental got, thing is uh, there's a lot of people who misunderstand lots of different aspects of the Old Testament and understanding that that law, that covenant that God made with Moses and with Israel has been fulfilled in Jesus. And there's a very clear line between, well, that's an old covenant thing. Now this is a new covenant thing. And if we don't understand that, there's going to be a lot of confusing things, including this question about music and worship. Um, but it's not limited to that. And just very quickly, Hebrews 10.1 is a very similar passage. It says, for the law, talk about the law of Moses having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually make perfect them to draw nigh. That makes application to the sacrifices. But in general, the Old Testament law contained a lot of things that were shadows of something that's coming. It wasn't the very image of what's coming, but what was coming was the real thing. So question, suppose I said, oh, we should be really step forward uh, spiritually and reinstitute all these things from the old covenant. Let's go back to the land of Israel. Let's build a temple. Let's sacrifice animals. Let's require circumcision. Let's go. Is that going forward or backwards? Well, That's coming you in. have a contradiction. You said, let's, if, if, if I'm going to be more spiritual, we want to do what? The physical? Yeah, that's that's becoming a dispensational premillennialist, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and it's a lot like what Paul said to the the Gentiles who in the churches of Galatia and Galatians four uh, in ten and eleven. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. <laughs> so as we go on here with our chart, in back then it was to be circumcised in the flesh. Now we're to be circumcised. In the heart. Then it was a physical warfare, and now it's spiritual, etc., etc. We come to, in the old covenant, they were to sing and play the trumpets. But in the New Testament, we're to sing and make the melody in the heart. And uh, Jeff, in a minute, on the the language there in that text. Wasn't there some dancing involved there sometimes? David, didn't he get up and dance? Uh, Yeah, there there was. And and coming back, from the, uh, when the Egyptians were drowned in the sea, Miriam uh, and the daughters of Israel were dancing and rejoicing. Uh, but, but in the New Testament, this is what we have. But so, suppose our friend says, but it's also in the book of Revelation. Doesn't it speak of harps in heaven? Yes, but Revelation has harps, temple, ark, altar, lamb that was slain, burning of incense. Like this verse, you've got harp and golden bowls full of incense. But what's the point of those golden bowls full of incense? The book of Revelation is a symbolic book in what is the incense actually? Prayers. Yeah, prayers of the saints. So here's the final thing that I'm going to mention, and then uh, I'd like you all to take a discussion elsewhere, just to compare harps and incense in Scripture. Here's some of the arguments. It's approved of in the Old Testament. True? Yeah, true. It's mentioned in the book of Revelation in these heavenly scenes. True? True. And the New Testament doesn't have a verse that says, don't play a harp in Christian worship. True. true. Now let's take a look at the burning of incense. Was it approved of in the Old Testament? Yeah. Is it mentioned in the book of Revelation? Yeah. Is there a verse that says, don't, you know, burn incense, you know, like in Troas when they came together, uh, or somewhere else. It doesn't say don't burn incense. 
Right. And between the two, which is mentioned more often, harps are mentioned 18 times in Scripture. Burning incense is mentioned 94 times. So instead of going back to the Old Covenant, the point is simply, I want to look at the New Testament. And what does it say? It says, speak to one another, singing, making melody with your heart to the Lord. Not with the harp, though. It says with your heart. Right. And that, and that you, you, you make that point, Drew, and that's kind of what you see there is, is, again, taking the Old Testament physical thing and then seeing the spiritual thing to which it points. You know, this is a concept that used to be understood by most people. Today, if you ask most people, is it normal to have instrumental music in worship or not? What would everybody say? Today, they'd say it's normal to have instrumental music. Right. And, they, and if you said, is it strange not to have instrumental music, what would everybody say today? Yeah. yeah. If you go back two or three hundred years ago, that would be just reversed. Uh, it would be strange to have instrumental music. And, and this is kind of interesting when we look at what's happened. Let me share my screen here. Uh, I hope I'm showing the right thing. Um, cause this is kind of what we've talked about so far. Can you guys see where it says shadow and reality? Mm-hmm. And so the, so the Old Testament, we've talked about, Scott, you went through and showed the, the temple, the incense. Um, and these things were part of the shadows foreshadowing what's coming under the New Covenant. And, and the New Covenant has the reality. So, but in these shadows, there's, there's a concept being taught. The Old Testament is a teacher. It teaches about salvation and it teaches about worship, and it does so in by using physical things that aren't really how we're saved. The Old Testament sacrifices, the altar burnt offerings, that's not really how we're saved, but it taught the concept. And, and the Old Testament also teaches about worship using physical things. Scott, you mentioned incense, right? Yes. And you mentioned in Revelation the connection of incense and prayers, right? Yes. When you think about just the physical aspect of burning incense, what happens? You burn it, something goes up as if it were going up to God. And what, what is it that goes up? Prayer. Smoke. Smoke. And how does that smoke smell? Sweet. Does the smoke, the physical smoke, literally go up to God? No. But that that conveys an idea. And if then when we find that the incense represents prayers, oh, our prayers are like a sweet offering up to God, going up to God. Oh, okay. So the physical thing kind of teaches a spiritual concept, but the spiritual concept is the real thing. So then we talk about instrumental music and Drew, you were alluding to this. Uh, this We look at Philipp, uh, Psalm 33 Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Let me suggest that in the instruments of the Old Testament, God was teaching the concept of emotion, of being moved, of making a joyful sound to the Lord. Remember, you've got a nation of people, Israelites. Are they all spiritual people? No. Are they all devoted to God from the heart? No. Though Israel be as the sand of the sea, it's only the remnant. But you could get them excited. You could get them to being joyful. You get a bunch of drums and trumpets and all that going, and they get the idea of being joyful in their worship. But but the joy that comes from external sources, that's not the real thing that God ultimately has in mind. That senses. That, yeah. 
So John Calvin wrote a commentary. Who's John Calvin? One of the big movers and shakers of the Reformation. And what denominations today have their roots in John Calvin's teachings? Reformed, Presbyterian. Sure. And John Calvin wrote a commentary on this Psalm 33. And he said this. There's a distinction, however, to be observed here that we may not indiscriminately consider as applicable to ourselves everything which was formerly enjoined upon the Jews. In other words, we shouldn't just go back and look at the Old Testament. Everything God told the Jews today, suppose that we should be doing it. Why not? He said, I have no doubt that playing upon cymbals, touching the harp and the viol, and all that kind of music, which is so frequently mentioned in the Psalms, was a part of the education that is to say, the puerile instruction of the law. Anybody know what puerile means? No. Juvenile. So for people who weren't really there yet, God's going to teach them. He's going to educate them, and he's going to use musical instruments to do it. This is what John Calvin was saying. He says the Old Testament is teaching about worship. But, he says, when they, talking about Christians today, frequent their sacred assemblies, musical instruments, and celebrating the praises of God would be no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting up of lamps, and the restoration of the other shadows shadows, shadows of the law. He recognized that what we said in Hebrews 10.1, the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things come, not the very form of the things, he's, he recognized those musical instruments were part of the system of shadows and weren't the real thing. What year was that that he wrote that? Oh, that'd be in the 1500s. I don't have the year, but okay. let's come forward in time just a little bit. Well, just here, I'm going to skip this right now. Well, I'll call attention to it. He was commenting on Psalm 33 and verse 2, sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. And in Ephesians 5, 19, it's making melody instead of with a harp of ten strings, it's with your heart. In English, that doesn't look all that from, that similar. But it's interesting, the, the, the syntax is similar enough in Greek between the Old Testament passage in the Psalms when it's translated into Greek in the Septuagint and then in the New Testament that my little Greek New Testament makes a note of Paul's language in Ephesians 5.19 as being similar to that in Psalm 33 verse 2, except Paul speaks of using the heart instead of, instead of a harp of ten strings. This is an interesting little quotation. This is from the Presbyterian Church. Drew, you asked about dates. Do you see the date on this publication? That's 1842. This is a publication out of Philadelphia. I'm very close to Philadelphia now. Philadelphia was a big center of Presbyterianism in the 1800s. And this little book published by the Presbyterians uh, says, Question six, is there any authority for instrumental music in the worship of God under the present dispensation? Answer, not the least, only the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs was appointed by the apostles. Not a syllable is said in the New Testament in favor of instrumental music, nor was it ever introduced into the church until after the 8th century, after the Catholics had corrupted the simplicity of the gospel by their carnal inventions. That's only less than 200 years ago. Well, how about this? How many of you have heard of Adam Clark? Clark's Commentary. Methodist. Yeah, you know, when you, Scott, when you and I were kids and, and uh, Drew was a kid and when Stephen and Jonathan uh, didn't exist. Um, and we rode around on dinosaurs. Yeah, we rode around. 
not that long ago. Oh, okay. Sorry. Clark's commentary was very popular. You can still go online and get Clark's commentary. It's public domain now, but most preachers I knew had a copy of Clark's commentary in, in their library. He was a Methodist, and he wrote this. I here declare that I never knew them, musical instruments, productive of any good in the worship of God, and have had reason to believe that they were productive of much evil. Music is a science I esteem and admire, but instruments of music in the house of God I abominate and abhor. This is the abuse of music, and here I register my protest against all such corruptions in the worship of the author of Christianity. So what denominations now have we seen expressing opposition to instrumental music? Methodist, Presbyterian, Reformed. Methodist, Presbyterian. connected with those of them. Now, Adam Clark mentions John Wesley. John Wesley was the founder of Methodism, of the Methodist Church. And he says, John Wesley, when asked his opinion of instruments of music being introduced into the chapels of the Methodists, said, I have no objection to the instruments of music in our chapels, provided they are neither heard nor seen. (laughs) Do you get the impression that these people thought that it was normal to use instrumental music in worship? Not at all. Not at all. Now, um, here's an interesting little thing. Acapella. Today we say uh, here's, there's an acapella group performing. What do we mean when we say there's an acapella group performing? Performing without instruments. They're performing without instruments. They're only using their voices. But the word acapella comes from a capella, a meaning at, and capella, chapel. In other, in other words, the expression a cappella comes from the idea that at chapel, you only use your voice. You don't use musical instruments. And so if we're going to sing a cappella, if we're going to sing as at chapel, then we're not going to use musical instruments. What does that tell you about what was the norm at chapel? No instrumental music. Even Catholics didn't always use instrumental music. You remember um, John, uh, John, West, I mean, uh, John Calvin attributed... Now I can't remember. Was it John Calvin? Yeah, it was John Calvin who attributed instrumental music to the uh, corrupting influence of the Catholic Church, right? Yeah. But even the Catholics didn't always use musical instruments. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, the 1200s. Thomas Aquinas was the guy who took all the hodgepodge doctrines that had grown up in, in Roman Catholicism and systematized them. And Thomas Aquinas said, our church does not use musical instruments as harps and psalteries to praise God with all that she may not seem to Judaize. In his understanding, if we were to bring in instrumental music, we would be going back to the Old Testament Jewish system. And he said, our church doesn't do that as late as the 12th century. That's not to say there weren't pockets where it was used. But he was trying to set things as they ought to be. He says, our church doesn't do that. Talking about the Catholic Church. Now, uh, there was something else I want to mention there. I don't remember what it was. Let, let, me, let me stop there for a minute. So you're saying then my horrible feelings that I was feeling when these people were singing in worship to God, as, by the way, Karen also just said she had the same, ex- same experience so strong that she did leave on a Wednesday service. She felt such a spirit, like a, a spiritual failure. So what you're saying is then Karen and myself had these feelings that these people were doing something strange because I was following something that was corrupted? And, and, and recent. 
Yes. Recently yes. corrupted. Yes, yes. If you went back two, three hundred years ago in Protestantism, in much of Protestantism, instrumental music would have seemed strange, but it, it crept in. Uh, it had previously crept into... It's interesting in the Catholic Church, it's kind of interesting... Thomas Aquinas was concerned about their Judaizing. In many ways, the Catholic Church does go back to Judaistic concepts, the emphasis on outward clothing, the lighting of lamps, the burning of incense, their concept of the priesthood. But at least when it came to worship and music, Thomas Aquinas said, we're not going back to the Judaistic way of doing things. Notice this here. This is from the magazine Christianity Today. Mm -hmm. Years ago, there was an article, When Did Churches Start Using Instrumental Music? Unaccompanied vocal music continued to be the norm. Uh, then in about the 10th or the 12th, Western, and that would be Roman Catholic, began using it. But then it mentions, and it's covered up at the end, how Protestants, uh, uh, and especially Presbyterians, did not. Here's Orthodox Church in America. Um, it says the use of organs in some churches in the U.S. is an innovation of recent uh, origin. It says the tradition of the Orthodox Church is to have no musical instruments. Uh, Presbyterian Reform, why no instruments uh, in worship? Uh, the apostles gave, oh, this is Clement of Alexandria, um, gives a quote here. Uh, we no longer employ the ancient psaltery and trumpet, timbrel, flute, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, here's uh, the, the pilgrims uh, saying without musical accompaniment. Uh, here's that quote that you had. Uh, this is uh, from Antiquities, John B., etc. Let me get back there. Go ahead. But guys, that's so old. We're living in the 21st century Here's today. the thing. Here's the thing. In the 21st century, if we are going to be spiritually God's people, then we're going to be inwardly God's people, and the joy that we feel is going to be coming from our hearts, from our understanding of the salvation that we have, the forgiveness of our sins. We're not going to need some outward thing like a bunch of drums to get us revved up and excited. And I'll just observe this. In the denominational world, when you have a heavy reliance upon instrumental music, that, that likely says something about the inadequateness of their inward spirituality. They can't get the joy without the inward. I was, I, was, I was in New Jersey, in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, a couple of weeks ago. There were two churches, storefront churches, meeting next door to each other. And it was interesting in one, and you could walk on the sidewalk, and you could see and hear the people singing or, or whatever. In one... They did not have instrumental music. Music. There was a crowd of people. It was a small room, so it wasn't couldn't be that many people. But it was, the room was packed with people joyfully singing praises to God and edifying one another. In the other one, there was uh, drums and musical instruments and guitars and everything. And you had four or five people standing there with their hands up, but you didn't hear a whole lot of enthusiasm coming out of anybody's mouth or out of anybody's hearts. What you had was a bunch of instruments. You right. could have walked into either one of those and, and gotten a feeling of some kind of a vibe. One feeling would have been from things made with hands, and it wouldn't have been out of the heart. The other would have been from the heart. Oh, that's a good point. Jonathan, so, you have a question. And then I want Stephen to wrap us up with some comments about uh, music in a larger scale, whichever way he wants to go. Jonathan. 
Yeah. So maybe something that, that should be brought up or, or a question um, to make sure I'm understanding correctly. So th- this whole idea of the shadow of things that have happened in the past, um, that includes um, things in the covenant as far as like feasts and, and instrumental music, as we're talking about, or, or different other uh, types of, of uh, uh, acts of worship that the, that the Jews had prescribed yes. by God. Is that correct? Yes. So, so how would that relate to what Paul is trying to teach the Romans in Romans 14 and 15. So, so in Romans 14 and 15, I'll, I'll just read this section in, in chapter 14. Uh, he says, as for the one who is weak in faith, verse one, welcome him, but do not quarrel over his opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who hear who eats for God has welcomed him. And then later on in that chapter, he says one person in verse five esteems one day better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Um, so that it seems to be that concept that, that Paul is trying to teach there is that there were things that were happening as a shadow. Um, and as long as they're not being bound, they're not being held in judgment, then that's okay. How is that different for these feast days and instrumental music? Mm-hmm. Paul observed feast day. Paul was a Jew. Right. And he and uh, Paul and other Jews observed the feast days. He would say, I'm trying to get back to Jerusalem for the Passover. But when Gentiles tried to make that, and Judaizers got Gentiles to think that was what they needed to have to have the gospel, no, Paul said, no. It's the difference between, in, in Romans 14, it's fine for a Jew to not eat pork, to you know observe, observe the Sabbath, but talking to Gentiles, don't let anybody make you do that. So Paul did things as a Jew that were, he was a Jew, but that's not part of the gospel. That Paul wasn't bringing that into the church. That was part of the, the Judaism of his culture. And, but then we could ask, well, so if I'm a Jew, would it be all right for me to worship God with instrumental music today? And, and here's the other aspect of that. What, let's just kind of walk through this here. Let's take the temple as a, as a shadow, the physical temple. Would it be appropriate for me to look at Romans 14 and say, oh, well, based on what it says here, that as long as you don't bind it, it's okay. Should we build a physical temple and say, that's where God dwells today? And we'd say no, and we would also say that whereas Jews between the time of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem continued to participate in the, Jew, in the temple service, even if they were Christians, the book of Hebrews prepared them for the understanding they needed to move beyond that, and the temple was then destroyed and brought that to an end. And I, I want to I pursue that line of thought through Romans 14 here in a second, but go ahead, Scott. Well, I, I want to get, because uh, we're about to run out of time, I want to get to some things that Stephen, uh, uh, to wrap up some thoughts here if we can pretty quick. Uh, right. I would just say this. Paul, when he was at the temple, he went to the temple and paid for animal sacrifices, Jewish animal sacrifices. That doesn't mean that Paul would have allowed that at all as, as part of Christian worship and that that was to be how Gentiles should worship. When Paul was at the temple and paying for the animal sacrifices, if there had been some priests and Levites up there blowing the trumpets, I don't think Paul would have gone over and reprimanded them for that any more than he was reprimanding the priest. But that was not the gospel. That was not the, that was not what part of the gospel that Paul was bringing to the Gentiles. When people tried to bring that into the church and into uh, 
uh, upon Gentiles. That's what he opposed. Well, just to, and real quickly, I know we need to get Stephen, but just real quickly here to add this thought. There's a difference in saying, I want to avoid meat because I just don't feel comfortable doing that because of the way I was raised. And on the other hand, saying, I'm going to burn incense to worship God, or I'm going to observe the Passover. Let's, let's take the Passover observance. The Passover lamb foreshadows what's coming in Christ. The reality is Christ. The Passover lamb doesn't take away our sins. Jesus Christ takes away our sins. Yes, it was all right for Jews to observe days, keep the Sabbath day, say I'm not going to work on the Sabbath day. Would it be all right for Jews or Gentiles who are Christians today to say, let's offer a lamb as a sacrifice for our sins in observance of the Passover? That's kind of the difference. But Stephen, I know we need to get to you here. Oh, yeah. And then I feel like I've been built up here. Um, but one of the things... <laughs> we need some drums. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, so as we approach music and worship, one of the important questions we want to ask is, well, well why music and worship? Well, what's the purpose of it? Uh, and we have to go to the scriptures to see what is God's purpose in music. If we're not supposed to use instruments and we're supposed to use our voices, well, what are we supposed to be doing with our voices? Because we, we can abstain from using instruments and that doesn't necessarily make our worship pleasing to God. Colossians. If if we don't have the drum and the trumpet and we also don't have the heart, that's (laughs) right. Yes. We can get the the form right and still get the substance wrong. And so I think it's helpful to look at, well, what's the substance of our worship supposed to be like Colossians three is very similar to the passage we looked at earlier in Ephesians five. Look at, Colossians 3, we'll start reading in verse uh, 15. He said, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So several things we can mention here. One is that we've already stressed is that singing is supposed to be something from the heart. Yes, it is something we do with our lips, but it's to be an outpouring of the heart, making melody with the heart to the Lord. We're supposed to be involved emotionally and spiritually in our singing. Some of the other things I like to point out here in verse 16 is it's let what dwell within you. The word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell within you. You know, there's a lot of songs that we have to sing out there. And some of them adhere very closely to scripture. And some of them end up saying some other things. Um, And again, it's not that every single phrase that we sing has to come directly from the scripture. But some of the things I, I think are just powerful that ought to be in our singing is we ought to be singing songs that come from the Bible. The more our singing comes from the scripture, the more it's going to accomplish what God wants it to, letting the word of Christ dwell within us richly. I don't know if y'all have ever had this experience where you're reading through a passage of scripture and you get to a certain word or phrase and you can barely read it without thinking of the tune that those words are set to. For, for me, it's that passage in First Timothy, for I know whom I have believed. You almost and sing it when you read it. That's right, because we <laughs> sing it believed, even though believed is the way we read it. Um, and that's because we remember songs. They're a great memory tool. And there are ways that we can help the word of Christ dwell richly 
within us. And one more point here, I know we're about out of time, is what does it say that we're supposed to be doing in our singing? After it says that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, what are we supposed to be doing to one another? Teaching. Teaching and 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 admonishing. We got to understand the words of what we're singing. You can't, uh, you can't be taught if he's speaking in another language. You can't be admonished or encouraged or moved to change if you don't understand what's being said. Lots of times we might even know the songs by heart, but if we're not thinking about them, if we're not engaged mentally in what's being taught, we're not benefiting from it. So it's helpful sometimes to slow down, to just read the words of what we're singing to think carefully about them. What scriptures does this come from? So that we can be letting the word of Christ dwell within us, first of all, and then we can also be teaching one another and accomplishing God's purposes for our singing. That's exactly the verse that was helping me get through the discomfort I was experiencing early on, because this is about teaching and admonishing, which means I need need to know more, as opposed to previously, I was being entertained. It's not about being entertained. It's about teaching and admonishing. Yeah. And final final comment I'll make is that when it becomes about entertainment and production, then it's also an invitation to make it about human ego and things like that. You can, you can see in some of the pop artists, uh, well, I'll give you an example. Katy Perry uh, became very famous with her song, you know, I Kissed a Girl. And, of course, Katy Perry is a girl. Uh, but she was a religious singer before that. Over and over, you see a pattern where somebody performed in churches, and then when they got the opportunity, what do you see? And uh, what are, the comment I want, want to mention is this. I hear that in some uh, denominational circles and such, you've got this church and you've got the, the music department. It's called the war department. The what? The war department. The music department of a church is sometimes called the war department because of the infighting and the egos. Who's going to get the solo? Who's going to get the... And that I never heard that. Amazing. And, and ego can become a problem in vocal music, too. So yep. we always have to keep ourselves in check. Well, guys, uh, you really helped me out. I'm glad we had this discussion. It was really close to my heart, still is, because of my memories of where I started from. But Good discussion. I thank you for all your comments and uh, questions. And guys, I look forward to seeing what's on tap for next week on Tuesday. Bible Quest. Thanks, everybody. Thank Bye. you, and have a good day.